It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Following the sad news of the death of Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away at the age of 96 this week, we are republishing this Platinum Jubilee episode of Payne's Politics in tribute to when we looked back on Her Majesty's 70 years on the throne. The Queen celebrates her Platinum Jubilee this weekend, marking 70 years since she ascended to the throne in 1952. The last and grandest symbol of all is the crown of St Edward. It is blessed by the Archbishop at the altar. The climax of the ceremony has arrived when the Archbishop gently sets this splendid emblem on the Queen's head. And the trumpets sound. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be tackling something a little different. As you heard at the top, the UK is in full celebration mode over a four-day weekend, marking all those decades since Queen Elizabeth II took to the throne. But instead of indulging ourselves in a discussion about Her Majesty, we're going to be looking at how Britain has changed since she took to the throne. From the you've never had it so good years of the 1950s, to the stagflation turmoil of the 1970s, the resurgent 1990s, to the post-pandemic, post-Brexit turbulence of today. To discuss, I'm delighted to have with me in the studio our political editor, George Parker, economics editor, Chris Drows, and associate editor and columnist, Sarah O'Connor. Thank you all for joining the pod. So, the Britain of February 1952, when Queen Elizabeth II took to the throne, was a country almost wholly unrecognisable from the one of today. Back then, the Prime Minister was a slightly tired bounder who was struggling to adapt to the age of modernity. In the end, death came as a friend. And after a happy day of sunshine and sport, and after a good night to those who loved him best, he fell asleep as every man or woman who strives to fear God and nothing else in the world may hope to do. I, whose youth was passed in the august, unchallenged and tranquil glories of the Victorian era, may well feel a thrill in invoking once more the prayer and the anthem. God save the Queen. Well, George Parker, you heard those words from Winston Churchill, and they are a reminder of what a different politics we have there, much more religious, for one thing. And if we think back to that was his last election victory for the Tories in 1951. It marked Labour's 13 years in opposition. But how does the politics then reflect on where we are today? Well, I think it was a, a moment in the country's history where it felt like we were sort of questioning our role in the world, didn't it? We'd emerged victorious from the Second World War, but we were still living under rationing for some products. Even in 1952, I think butter and sugar were still being rationed at that time. So it was a time of economic hardship. And it was like we were living in this grand house, but it was starting to look a little bit dilapidated. And 
we were trying to find our way in the world, try to work out what our role was going to be post the Second World War when we were obviously clinging on to parts of the empire, but the empire was going to go. So it was a time of uncertainty. So, so you know, I don't want to overlabor the parallels between then and now, but, you know, clearly we're facing some economic difficulties today. And Britain, despite the rhetoric about global Britain, is still searching slightly, I think, post-Brexit for a its new role in the world. And I think there was obviously such a great contrast between Churchill, who I think was well into his 80s at the point of when the Queen came to the throne, and this very youthful young monarch who seemed to symbolise a kind of new and different Britain that has therefore become sort of, I think, what her reign has been about, is about how the country has reshaped in more of her image than probably his. Yeah, I think that's true. Certainly in 1952, we were looking for bright spots in the sort of slightly grey spirit of the time. That's why we're so, so much excitement about the, the expedition up Mount Everest and so much excitement around the coronation of a young a young queen sort of symbolising a, a move to a different kind of future. And we'll come on to reflect on this, I'm sure, but the fact that the queen has been this sort of leitmotif running through the country's history ever since then has been a fascinating thing for the life of the country. Well, Chris Charles, it's a delight to have you with us. As I said at the beginning, after Winston Churchill came Anthony Eden and Harold Macmillan, who very famously said at the end of the 50s, Britain had never had it so good. It was seen as an age of prosperity, the post-war boom, but rationing still didn't fully come to an end until 1954. And the British economy was very, very different there and a lot smaller. Yes, I think it's one of those politicians' phrases, even in the 50s. We, we like to think that politicians might have been more honest in the past than they are now, but they still looked for the way to describe it, which was true but not necessarily fair. So it was true Britain hadn't had it so good in the 1950s. It, it was richer than it had ever been domestically as a country, but it was definitively declining as a world power, definitively declining in its role in the world. Empire was diminishing. and it was being overtaken by the defeated nations of Europe from the Second World War. And that left us through the 50s, and in particular in the 1960s, with a sense that we were falling back as a nation, uh, which culminated in the 1970s. So the economy was very different. Of course, in the 1950s, we had nearly 50% of the economy was production and construction. Now it is about 15%. So that is the amount it's changed. And we are now much, much richer than we were then. You know, in real terms, we are about three and a half times richer per person but also we're a very different country. We've got nearly 70 million people then and now, and we had 50 million people then. But of the 50, we only had 2 million people born abroad, and now it's nearly 10 million people. So it's a very, very different place. We should recognise how much things have changed. With Sarah O'Connor, society has changed entirely. That that economy that Chris was talking about was very much dominated by heavy manufacturing, by big industries, and also very male-dominated economy as well. If you think back to that 1950s era, you know, women were still predominantly at home as housewives. And now the workplace today is totally different. And there's obviously very different jobs, more white-collar jobs. But there's still obviously a lot more uncertainty, I think, in the working world than there was back then. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned how male-dominated it was. And actually, in the 50s is when we really started to see the beginnings of women entering the workplace. So, you know, obviously, women had to work in munitions factories doing the kinds of jobs that men had done during the Second World War. After the war ended, you know, you had a bit of a retrenchment in the sense that men came back and they did those jobs. And as, as Chris said, we had pretty much full employment. But what you did start to see was women who had had their children start to go 
back into the workforce in sort of their middle ages and they were doing jobs in manufacturing, schools, cleaning, things like that. And that was a really big change that used to be that when you got married, boom, that was it. Your working life as a woman was over. So the civil service got rid of its ban on married women, etc, etc. And actually for sort of middle aged women at the start of that decade, at the start of the 50s, only sort of 25% of them were working. And by the end of that decade, it was 50%. So you were already starting to see back then the kind of entry of women into the workplace. And obviously that continued um, and we got to a point where women didn't feel the need to take long breaks when their children were young. You know, my daughter is three. I'm here at the Financial Times. I believe she's fine. Uh, In the 50s, I think I would have been judged quite poorly for making that decision, whereas now that's, you know, not only to be expected, but indeed, you know, celebrated by most people. So yeah, in terms of the, the gender division, that has changed massively. As Chris alluded to, the manufacturing predominance has has shifted, you know, manufacturing certainly as a share of employment has shrunk massively. I think it's what, 10% now? Even more workers. than output. Even more than output. Because our factories are now quite productive, we just don't need as many people working in them. So yeah, so the number of people who actually work in, in manufacturing jobs is, is tiny, services is massive. Sarah, I just wonder whether you think um, having a female monarch has played a role in this societal transformation in any way. Maybe. I mean, the Queen herself, didn't she work during the war as, a, as an ambulance mm. driver? And, um, and obviously... She was, a, mm. she was a mechanic as well, very famously, and I think still up until very recently repaired her yeah, own cars. Yeah, so, you know, in a way her life trajectory sort of follows that of the... That of the nation, doesn't it? So obviously after the 50s, we had the very big changing decade of the 60s, which Britain became much more socially liberal and society changed a lot, but obviously still continues to have quite a lot of economic turbulence. And that sort of came to the head really in the 1970s. And that was the first moment we marked the Queen's first jubilee, her silver jubilee. And this is what she had to say at that point. When I was 21, I pledged my life to the service of our people And I asked for God's help to make good that vow. Although that vow was made in my salad days when I was green in judgment, I do not regret nor attract one word of it. So George, if you look at the 20 year gap between those two, all those things you talked about in terms of the empire was really finished by that point. And of course, during the 1960s, we famously had the winds of change that Howard Macmillan talked about throughout Africa and the former colonies gaining independence, but still being part of the Commonwealth. I wanted to ask you about the Commonwealth because it's treated with quite a lot of scepticism, I think it's fair to say, by politicians in Westminster. But for the Queen, this has been a very important part of how she sees Britain's role in the world, but also her role in the world and the values she put forward. Yeah, and I think she regards this, you know, on a geopolitical scale as being her contribution towards global Britain. The traditional foreign office view was we joined as many clubs as we possibly could, whether it was, you know, being a member of the permanent five of the Security Council of the United Nations or NATO or the European Union from 1973. The Commonwealth was seen as part of that interlocking network of clubs that we were a member of. And the Queen, as you say, put a special importance on it. She was always very enthusiastic about the Commonwealth Games, which may have passed under the radar screen of some people, but it's being staged in Birmingham this summer. And we've got a a summit coming up in Rwanda, a Commonwealth Heads of Government summit later this month as well. So, yeah, the Commonwealth is something she invested a lot of time on. There have been questions, I think, raised recently, most particularly by the visit by Prince William and Kate to the Caribbean, where people started to wonder if if the Commonwealth was starting to look like an antiquated organisation. And it's certainly going to have to evolve because... 
the uh, images from that trip were, from a PR point of view for the royal family, disastrous of sort of white people meeting people from the colonies or the old colonies behind fences. It was, it, the, the imagery was terrible. I think they recognised that. So it's going to have to evolve. And I think there's always a big question about the Commonwealth, about whether the monarch should be the head automatically of the Commonwealth. The expectation is that Prince Charles will become the head of the Commonwealth when the Queen dies. I think probably at some point in the future, we're going to need to have a non-Brit running the Commonwealth if it's going to move into this century more successfully. Now, Chris, I don't want to overlabor this point because I think there's been many pieces in the FT's comment pages arguing we are going back to the 1970s economically. But in terms of Britain's post-war performance, that was probably the worst point of where we were at in terms of the three-day week, industrial strife, politically very unstable through, obviously, Ted Heath's government to several elections in 1974, Howard Wilson into James Callan before the 1980s and Margaret Thatcher arrived. Where do you see the economic story of the 70s compared to today? Well, it's, it's like today, but on heat, really. So we had in 1973, in the rather disastrous Barber boom, that was the Chancellor, Anthony Barber, under Edward Heath, we fueled the fire of inflation so that it reached 25 or 26% in 1974, 75, at a time of very low unemployment. So at the time, we didn't think unemployment really should ever be above sort of 3%. And it was a crisis when it was above 3%. And so we pumped up the economy more at a time of the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East, and uh, the first oil shock. And so our response then was uh, to make it more inflationary than it was. And we then had industrial strife and compounded the inflation we were getting from abroad with domestic inflation. And we were worse than any other advanced country. And so we were particularly worse than West Germany at the time, and the US as well, and France and everyone else. But particularly West Germany was stood out as an example of how you deal with the same forces when they didn't have oil and no one had any oil in, the, in Europe. And they clamped down, had a recession as well, but a much more shallow one and got rid of their inflation. So that is the similarity. It was worse then. Let's be absolutely clear. You know, we are not in that position now, but we do face the same forces. And so we don't want to get into that position. So the really interesting thing about now is if you read some of the economic commentary from the 1960s, and I had a great fun looking at the last Federal Reserve uh, not their minutes, but their actual transcript of their three-hour meeting. Only in, you would find that fun. Chris. It was great fun in, in 1964, December 1964, because the Fed now says that the period of the great inflation starts in January 1965. So the, what they were saying on the eve of that was precisely what all the central banks in the same sort of terminology have been saying recently until they've been recognising that maybe this inflation is a bit more sticky than they thought. You know, oh, it's all in one good. Oh, no, it's only coming from abroad. We've got a very flexible labor market, they were saying all the same things then. So we do have to watch it, but we're not in the 70s. Now, Sarah, at this point, of course, obviously, this is when deindustrialization really starts to pick up pace at this point. So the big nationalized industries after the war in terms of the mines, they started to consolidate in quite big numbers, obviously came to its peak in the 1980s. The British motor industry, I think, became an emblem of all the economic problems and also the industrial strife as well. And I guess the 70s was the point at which trade unions probably held the most power and flexed it for better or for, better or for worse the most effectively. Yeah, definitely. So at the trade unions sort of peak of their power in the 1970s, about 50% of all employees were members of a trade union. That is now about 23%. And most of those are in the public sector these days. So in the private sector, it's like 13% of us are in trade unions, including 
you know, the FT journalists holding out there as relics of the 70s. So yeah, so the, the trade unions were very powerful. And as you say, in the decade, particularly the decade that followed, huge amount of change, both in terms of the structure of the economy and the, the dismantling of the structural power and the, the size of the trade unions. And that's one reason why I think that, you know, for all that inflation now is serious. I don't think we're going to end up in a wage price spiral in the same way that we did in the 70s, because workers just don't have that kind of collective power to keep wages on pace with inflation. And actually, I mean, if you take the whole of the 1970s, on average, real wages actually grew a couple of percent per year through the 70s. And that was because workers were able to keep matching inflation with their own wages. And I really don't think that's what we'll see this time. I think we're just going to see our living standards drop a bit. And it's interesting just to bring this to contemporary news events slightly. We're obviously facing potential rail strikes this summer with the RMT be talking quite aggressively about bringing the whole country to a standstill. And that feels like an odd relic of that time because there's no other trade union at the moment that has the power to do that. And the government is talking about introducing legislation to have a minimum service, which would basically end strikes as an effective way of stopping an industry. But obviously the RMT was very powerful then. And I think it's pretty much the only union that could still do that sort of thing now. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, the reason that the rail unions are getting so much attention now is because they are the last union that really has the power to bring the country to a halt in the same way. Even in other sort of public sector areas like education, what unions can actually do to, to disrupt things and to force government to come back to the table is pretty minimal. Now, George, the 1980s, if we just skip forward a little bit more, was obviously Britain's first female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, and very famously had a testy relationship with the Queen, which those who've watched The Crown will be aware about how it's dramatised. Some might say over-dramatised, but I think it's pretty fair to say that the policies and direction which saw, obviously, the great economic revival of Britain in a very different style of economy did create an awful lot of political tension. And I think there was a very famous Sunday Times front page that said that the Queen did not approve of some of the policies and the social unrest that resulted from the Thatcher era. Yeah, I mean, the Queen would have looked out at the scenes of the Battle of Orgreave, the coking plants and the miners' strike. When you look back at that period, and I took my kids to see the film The Iron Lady, and you forget what a violent time that was, the 1980s. The IRA violence was at its height, the industrial strife, pitched battles. It was a very violent time, and I think the Queen looking out of the country, and, you know, you think her role has been to sort of try to be a glue holding things together, she'd have looked at a country which she would have thought was on the verge of social breakdown. And that did, indeed, as well documented at the time, but also in dramas subsequently, lead to quite a difficult relationship with Margaret Thatcher, who she held responsible for not just transforming the economy, but taking a rather callous view about the consequences of the economic reforms that she was, she was introducing. But, George, when we look forward to the 1990s as well, which is generally seen as the low point of the Queen's reign because it was when obviously Prince Charles was divorced. There was the fire at Windsor Castle that of course took us into the age of Diana and obviously that was the point at which the Queen felt as if possibly for the first time she really was out of touch with where the country was. And that's probably the point at which support for the end of the monarchy of the Republic was at its highest. Yes, I mean, the, the events around the the death of Diana in particular and the failure of the Queen to return to, to London, to Buckingham Palace, in fact, the failure to fly the flag at half-mast on Buckingham Palace, that represented a, a real low point for the monarchy. And famously, Alistair Campbell was brought in, Tony Blair's chief advisor, to try to advise the royal family on how to do public relations. And, you know, through the 90s, we moved into the era of Cool Britannia and everything seemed to move and Tony Blair came along and suddenly the Queen looked slightly 
antiquated. Subsequent to that, I have to say, the Queen has played a bit of a blinder in terms of her PR, if not other members of her family, of course. Well, we're now going to jump quite far forward to the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012, where she came through that turbulence, and her son, Prince Charles and the future King, had this to say about her. Your Majesty... Your Majesty... Mummy... I'm sure you'd want me to thank, on your behalf, all the wonderful people who've made tonight possible. All the performers, the, the artists, the musicians, the comedians who made such jolly good jokes. Well, Chris, when we look at that moment, 2012 was a very potent moment for Britain. It was obviously when we held the Olympics. And if you look at where the monarchy was, probably more popular than it's ever been. But also our economy was obviously coming off the back of the financial crisis. We were knee deep in the austerity years of the coalition government. But if you think about where the country was there, compared to even the early 90s, the 80s, the 70s and the 50s, very, very different place. I think a lot of people will look at 2012 and think that that was almost a high point given the turbulence that came ahead in terms of the economy, in terms of our politics. I think it was a time when the nation felt pretty united, particularly over the Olympic celebration and the Diamond Jubilee earlier in the year. And although the politics was pretty tough at the time and austerity was really tough, there was a sense at least that a little bit that we were all in it together. And particularly when it came to the celebrations over the Olympics, I think that was very much felt around the nation. You know, you've got to look at, at the longer period. And it was a period when the monarchy was extremely popular, particularly the opening ceremony of the Olympics made the Queen look modern and able to make fun of herself uh, and see the sort of jocular side. But, you know, I think we should recognise that it's always gone a bit downhill before then a little bit and downhill after that in terms of the unity of the country. Uh, it was only two years after that where we had a referendum of whether Scotland would secede from the UK. And she made it quite well known actually and this is one thing I think has been fascinating throughout her reign is the odd political interventions she has made. Never direct of course, and there was obviously the point about Margaret Thatcher that it was sort of made known that she was not happy with the direction it was going. With Scotland, I think the words were that the people of Scotland should think very carefully. She said to somebody at a church service that then somehow magically made itself into the press. But then, of course, very famously, in 2016, there was a leak on the front page of The Sun, which was the Queen backs Brexit, that someone from the government had been a minister, and she is reported to have said at that time, why do we really need the EU? And of course, Buckingham Palace denied the Queen said this and had any views on the Brexit issue. Well, who knows whether she said it or not, but it's not exactly been something that's united the country ever since. Uh, so whatever you think of Brexit, it's not been the thing that's made the UK so far, at least, a happy place. Now, Sarah, this is where we've gone to since 2012. So as I said, that was such a great moment for London, for the whole country. And as Chris said, there was a feeling we had carved out this quite happy post-Empire role of what we stand for in the opening ceremony of the Olympics, I think really spoke to that. But that was then probably followed by two referendums, an awful lot of economic, social and political upheaval. Do you think that was a false moment or was it a real moment? I think it was a bit of a false, but I mean, you know, if you were in London and you were, you'd managed to get some tickets to some of those events, obviously it was wonderful and it was a lovely summer. But actually the seeds of what followed were clearly there. You know, there's a lot of debate over 
who voted for Brexit and why they voted for Brexit. But I think there is some validity to the fact that for some people, they felt that the economy wasn't working particularly well for them, that it hadn't for a long time. I spent quite a lot of time in Blackpool not long after the Brexit referendum and spoke to a lot of people who had never voted in any general election, but did vote in Brexit for Brexit, not particularly because they had strong views on Europe, but just because they thought whatever we have now doesn't work. So let's roll the dice and see if something else will work. And so, you know, some of those seeds go all the way back to the, the deindustrialization of the 80s, which you talked about. I know Chris is going to disagree and say it was all rich people who voted for Brexit. But well, it was both. Yeah. It was a coalition of the, um, the satisfied odd coalition. elderly rich and the dissatisfied displaced youth, I would say. Now, I want to end with some words from the Queen herself. And obviously, as I said, I'm delighted to have all three of you in the studio. And this is such a rare thing. So we've gone through the past two years of the pandemic where all of our lives became virtual. And I think in some ways for me, this is actually sums up the Queen's reign and could actually be her greatest moment when she gave this address to the country that was really in its dire straits during COVID. A disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, and enormous changes to the daily lives of us all. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. But for now, I send my thanks and warmest good wishes to you all. And I think, George, when you hear those words, that sums up the kind of continuity and the message that she's trying to bring throughout her 70 years on the throne. And even though all these things have changed, we've talked about, she's always been that continuity force that has sort of bound British society together. Yeah, I think so. I think that speech was one of her finest moments, actually. The fact that she used that phrase, we will meet again in the middle of the COVID pandemic, had a real sort of emotional force. But of course, what it was was a reminder continuous line that she represented all the way back to the Second World War and Vera Lynn. And, you know, whether you're a monarchist or a Republican, you can still see the value, I think, of sort of that sort of collective memory being reflected in one person, in this case, the Queen. And her messaging there was exemplary, I thought, and reflected the fact she has been very, very well advised in the way she speaks and in moments of national difficulty like that. And of course, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that moment that defined, in a way, COVID and the hardships the whole country had to endure, which was the funeral of her husband, Prince Philip, where she sat alone in black. And of course, we now know very well what was going on in Downing Street the night before. And, you know, if going back to 1997, when Tony Blair was having to advise the Queen on how to do her PR, you could equally make the case now that someone in Buckingham Palace should be advising Boris Johnson and the, the team in number 10. Oh, Chris, this jubilee is obviously a, a big moment for the country, but it's also going to be a big moment for the monarchy as well, because I think, obviously, the Queen is a considerable age now, and there is this general sense across the country, but I think particularly across Whitehorn Westminster, that we are sort of into the final period of the Queen's reign there. Prince Charles will be very different. I think there's no doubt about that as well. He's become to the throne as a much older man, not without having those decades of experience of learning all those things that George was talking about, but how you handle the role... Do you see that being a sort of an easy transition? And how is he going to capture? Because we've obviously talked about the divisions we have in the country, which I think are still pretty strong. Some of them have healed since the 2019 election, but some of them have also got worse. I don't think it's going to be a particularly difficult transition. There isn't a very strong force of republicanism in the UK. So I don't think there's. it's the moment where everyone will say, now we want something different. But if he's very different as king... 
and doesn't have the sense of where the nation is like the Queen has had and the good sense not to get involved in politics like the Queen has shown over the past 70 years, things can change pretty quickly. And we saw that even without doing very much wrong in the 1990s, things got quite difficult for the monarchy here. I think, you know, you do have to keep playing it at the best game because if things start to look tricky and people start to say, well, wouldn't this country be a better place if we didn't have the monarchy? It was lovely when Queen Elizabeth II was on the phone. She was wonderful. But this this current lot, they're dreadful. That's quite easy and the mood can change quite quickly. And I think finally, Sarah, the weight of emotion is because the Queen is the last global figure from the 20th century. She's a connection to, obviously we heard Winston Churchill's clip at the beginning there, but also to the warriors, George was reflecting, and a very different time. And some of that is obviously tinged with nostalgia when I think a lot of older citizens will think that the country was maybe simpler, life was more straightforward, there were less complex and less challenges. How much do you think the monarchy should look at really sort of changing and modernizing when we get to that point of which things will be different? Or is it more just trying to be that continuity factor in our lives? Yeah, I think they should do the latter. You know, I'm always slightly sceptical of this notion that they need to modernise in, in some way. I don't even know what that means. But when you start going down that road, you start to lose, you know, the one thing that I think the monarchy has, which, as you say, is this connection to sort of tradition and giving some sense of sort of stability and something for people to hold on to. You know, I was only born in the 80s. So even though I don't remember many of these decades that we've just been discussing, you know, I feel like I have quite a lot of personal respect and affection for the Queen. So it'll be interesting to see whether the people who follow can sort of keep that line as a sort of a continuous one. And let's, uh, let's see. It's certainly going to be a very big challenge. Well, George, Chris and Sarah, thank you very much for joining us for this slightly different episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. And if you want some even more monarchy action, then our colleagues over on the FT Weekend podcast present audio from the FT Weekend Festival. Simon Sharma, Tina Brown and Joe Ellison on What Next for the Windsors. You can find that on all the usual channels where you can also find Payne's Politics to receive episodes as soon as they're released. This podcast was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you're in the UK, enjoy the long bank holiday weekend. And if you're Board and wave a flag on our behalf. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.